I do get frustrated sometimes, especially in places like San Francisco, where it's an incredibly politically disengaged community, even though people are constantly striving to do better and they're philanthropically active in some ways. But people, if you're like, who's your mayor? You know, when was the last time you voted? I think many of them wouldn't know. With a Forbes listing in 2014 as one of its 30 under 30 for social entrepreneurship, Clara Brenner is championing a new type of venture capitalism that invests in the future of cities. Clara's background working for urban innovation startups led her to question why there weren't other entrepreneurs in this space, ultimately leading to her discovery of funding and regulatory gaps. Long story short, her first urban venture program with co-founding partner Julie Ling was born with the mission of empowering entrepreneurs to solve urban problems. From the success of this company, Clara and Julie continued to widen their impact with Urban Innovation Fund, which closed a $24.5 million seed stage fund in June. With a diverse portfolio of companies under their wing, Urban Innovation Fund is set to dramatically change the urban landscape. So we're here in San Francisco to talk to Clara about that. So welcome, Clara. Thank you very much for being a guest. Thanks for having me. How are you this morning? I'm great. You know, it's Friday, which is always good. And you've already told me that you had a Danish for breakfast. So (laughs) you're starting well. Signature breakfast move. I love a good Danish. So we'd like to do a quick fire round just to get a very quick idea about our guests. So city break or beach holiday, or neither, because you just, San Francisco, right? I'm a country person, actually. If I'm not going to be at work, I really like being in the country. You can't give a third answer. (laughs) I did my research. (laughs) Okay, so office or work from home? Office. And baseball or basketball? In our household, it's a rugby household. Oh, that's super unusual. How come? (laughs) My husband's South African, so Ah. it's on all the time. Okay, fine. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Uh, Summer or winter? Summer. Kindle or paperback? Audiobook. Same. I should have definitely Love just Love a good audiobook. Same. Uh, email or phone call? Phone call. Um, early bird or night owl? Very early bird. What time do you wake up this morning? 4.30. Oh my God. You've got the same <laughs> jet lag I do. Uh, East coast or west coast? Definitely west coast. And work or play? Work. Finally, very important, but cats or dogs? Dogs. Okay. And your favorite childhood memory, actually? Friday night dinners with my family. Oh, nice. Okay. That's a very uh, wholesome memory. (laughs) Right. We're going to crack straight into it. So it's time to find out a little bit more about you and the business. So firstly, can you tell us something about yourself, your background, why you got into all of this, basically? Sure. So uh, about myself, I run a fund called the Urban Innovation Fund. We invest in startups shaping the future of cities. The fund is about two years old, but I've been investing in the space for about five years yeah, I, I'm all about cities all the time. But there must be a reason. I mean, that was your that was your short PR answer. But what's your what's your what's your reason? What was your motivating factor? Did you just like walk around a really shit city one day and you're like, this place is ruined. I can do much better. It must be like a starting point on that hero's journey. My hero's journey, I guess, began in Washington D.C., where I grew up. Um, and the two big industries in D.C. are government and real estate, um, which were both really interesting to me sort of as I was considering a potential career path. And uh, when I went to college, I wasn't sure which direction I wanted to go. Uh, so I ended up writing kind of a my undergraduate thesis on the historical relationship in Manhattan between private developers and local government, trying to figure out, you know, why did lower Manhattan turn out the way it did and ultimately who got a bigger say in how New York became the amazing place that it is. Um, and ultimately, you know, it became pretty clear to me that both Industries have a tremendous amount of influence over what happens in our cities, but 
real estate developers have a lot more fun and they make a lot more money and they get to be a lot more creative oftentimes. Um, so actually after college, I went into real estate development back in Washington, DC, which I loved, um, but really ultimately decided I didn't like having a boss. So I went back to business school where I thought, you know, I would get the skills to basically create my own real estate development firm. Um, but while I was there, I got the tech bug. So I ended up working briefly for a real estate tech company called Fundrise, which essentially is like a betterment type product, but for private real estate assets. They've gone on to raise about $50 million. So they're awesome. But it really opened my eyes in terms of the role that technology has to play also in terms of shaping our urban environments. And that kind of set me on the path that I'm on now. And when did you move to San Francisco? Mm, six years ago. So right after business school. Okay. And you co-founded Tummel before that. So it's a nonprofit startup accelerator, as I understand it. Yeah. And then um, Urban uh, Urban Innovation Fund as well with Julie Lee. So was she your partner in the last fund as well? Yeah. So she and I were actually classmates at business school. Um, and we really came together around our love for startup solving city problems. Although I don't think we would have called it that at the time. So she had been working at what was then a small company is now a really big company here in the Bay Area called Revolution Foods. Um, essentially, they're a healthy school meal provider. So um, they compete with the likes of these, you know, Airmarks of the world, the big industrial catering firms. But they, you know, hire from the local community. They source fresh ingredients. They prioritize education about health. I think they do something like two hundred million in annual revenue now. So they're amazing. And Fundrise was a really transformative experience for me. And this was like when Lyft was just getting off the ground and Airbnb was just getting off the ground. And we felt like all of these companies had something in common. Um, I don't think they would self-identify as social impact companies, but they were all having a really profound influence over what was happening in our communities and from our perspective in a good way. And we, we were struggling to kind of group them together, what to call them. We kind of coalesced around the name urban innovation um, startups. And we ended up doing a big research study, kind of harnessing Julie's brain power, since she used to be a political pollster <laughs> in a previous life, um, to kind of try and figure out how to describe what they had in common. And ultimately, through our research, we found that they actually have two big things in common. The first is they have a lot of trouble raising early stage capital. You know, a lot of them have a physical component to what they do. So if you're a bike share system, you need a, a whole fleet of bikes. If you're Revolution Foods, you need a physical culinary center where you can produce those meals, you know, from day one, or you're in some kind of like a, a new economy or a sharing economy type space, in which case more institutional investors just want to see that you have a lot of traction before they're going to take a risk on you. So that's big challenge number one. Big challenge number two was that pretty much across the board, all of these companies face pretty significant regulatory and political hurdles as they look to scale. Um, you know, if you're Uber and Lyft, you're like breaking every law known to man. If you're selling into a school district, it's incredibly highly regulated, highly unionized. So we ended up taking our research to Blackstone when we graduated um, and tried to sort of pitch them on the idea of creating a showcase investment portfolio of all startups doing good things for our cities while... Was this Tummel, sorry? Uh-huh. This was Tummel, yeah. yeah. that was Tummel. So the idea it, was... The, you know, you can... It sounds almost like it could be interchangeable in totally. the sense of your, your focus. Yeah. Um, so we we basically incubated 38 companies focusing on, you know, startups that were solving city problems, helping them with their regulatory and political challenges. And the portfolio did really, really well in a very short period of time. So really strong returns with companies like we were the first investors in Chariot, which is a commuter shuttle service that 
Two years after our initial investment was acquired by Ford to serve as the backbone of their new smart mobility business line, we are the first investors in a company called Neighborly, which is like a crowd investing platform for municipal bonds, which has gone on to do really well. Um, so yeah, the, the portfolio was very strong from very sort of traditional business metrics, but also you know, we were able to track the urban outcomes of all these companies. And actually for that portfolio, 76% of those companies had a woman or person of color on the founding team, which is really, really unusual in Silicon Valley. Um, and so that kind of gave us the credibility to launch the Urban Innovation Fund. Seems to be breaking quite a lot of molds there. You've got, um, objectively speaking, from the outside looking in, you know, uh, both of the founders being females, probably quite unusual Very with Silicon unusual, Valley. Very unusual, yeah. Yeah. And, and then, of course, like breaking all the molds as well with, you said, 76%. Uh-huh. I mean, that's quite amazing. So, yeah. you know, going off topic a little bit, but we'll come back to it. How do you feel as a female founder at VC when people draw attention to that stuff? Are you like, uh, yeah, that's great and I'm glad people are talking about it? Or are you more of the opinion of like, don't talk about it in the sense of like my gender, who gives a fuck? It shouldn't be spoken about that way. Like, where do you sit on the, on the side here? Because obviously it is a lot rarer here than maybe in other parts of the world. I think it's great. I mean... I don't want to be funded because of my gender or the fact that our portfolio has an incredibly demographically diverse um, you know, array of founders. That shouldn't be the only reason. But for us, we are really trying to show other institutional investors that they can do this too. They can hire in a diverse manner. They can invest in quote-unquote non-traditional founders. They can target companies that are solving really meaningful challenges and make a lot of money doing it. Um, so for us, you know, while it's not what we lead with, we're super happy to talk about it. Okay. Now coming back to the companies you have invested in, yeah. which in themselves are pretty diverse. Very. So, um, from doing my research, I saw that one has, uh, created educational software and games for children. Another provides self-driving electric vehicles for deliveries, one providing breast milk and nursing supplies, shipping service. Uh-huh. So what links them together? Like what is the thread that you look for? So we describe ourselves as investing in startups shaping the future of cities, so using technology to make the lives of people who live in cities better. Um, And that can really run the gamut in terms of industry vertical from traditional smart city sectors like transportation and utility management, but we also include areas like education and the future of work. Um, You know, when we think about the future of cities, we try to prioritize problems that are at top of mind for mayors uh, around the U.S. and ideally beyond. And Companies that are solving the kind of problems that mayor's offices across the country prioritize but haven't necessarily been able to tackle sufficiently on their own. Um, you know, where there are big problems, we think there's a great opportunity for scalable technology to step in and hopefully augment what government can do. So is the government technically a potential customer for a lot of these? How does it work or is it more state specific? Sometimes, but not usually. Um, I think for many startups, government is not a good first customer, frankly. Unless you're Palantir. <laughs> Unless you're Palantir. Unless you're Peter Thiel and then everything's okay. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so One I day. think I think we're, we're open-minded about GovTech, but it's certainly not our primary focus. You know, for us, it's much more about companies that are tackling interesting problems and being thoughtful about the regulatory or political environment in which they're playing, um, just because that's a problem we see a lot of companies face and don't necessarily take seriously until it's too late. So in terms of your career, it feels like almost straight off the back, you've gone into investing and the venture capital world. Is that Mm -hmm. right, roughly? Yeah, sure. And so how do you um, know that you're the right type, so to speak? You know, when you're growing up 
like is a is it an ambition to become a venture capitalist like for you personally was that always what you wanted to do or is it more the interest in like the change in the world and this becomes a really good vehicle to do it you know i i never occurred to me that venture capital was a career until i went to business school but i knew that whoever was in charge of the money was in charge that's always been pretty clear to me and so understanding that there were all of these companies that could be doing great things and founders who could be doing great things if they had access to capital was something that was really exciting to me. And it's funny, growing up, I was always, my mom worked for the World Bank and I I always thought I'm going to do the opposite of whatever she did. She worked at this big bureaucratic institution and she loved her job, but to me it just sounded sort of horrendous um, just in terms of the complicated nature of, of operating in a very large, complicated organization. Um, but someone pointed out to me recently that I, I basically have the same job that she does, but I invest in slightly different companies. Um, and I think that's right. I think I, I've always been aware that, you know, when you are able to direct capital, you have a lot of opportunities to touch the lives of many, many people. And one of the aspects of being a VC is obviously being able to spot the next thing, um, spot trends, and I guess people, psychology, like the personality behind the mission-driven person, because you know, out here, I'm sure it's very easy to find um, people who are very passionate because you've got so, I mean, just the culture out here, right? Everyone's so energetic and really thinking about how hard to work and what problems to solve, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're cut out to be a founder. So how do you feel um, as a venture capitalist, um, you're able to spot the winners? I mean, I think part of it is just personality fit. You know, are these people that we want to work with on a day-to-day basis, you know, are they thoughtful about what they say and who they say it to, which is pretty basic. But for us, we we also talk about a, a maniacal focus on money, frankly. You know, founders that want money and are going to do whatever it takes to get money are the right kind of founders for us, just because I think there is such a need for scale and such a need to not just have a good idea and not just have a good team, but be able to marshal the resources to get it done. Those are usually the kind of founders that we like to see. And to date, who's been the most exciting company you've worked with and why? <laughs> you can't pick a favorite, um, but... So says everyone. So says everybody because it's true. Okay. But a company that we've been really excited about is that company Chariot that I mentioned earlier. They always demonstrated so much momentum, and that was one of the most exciting parts. Like when we first met Ali, he came to us and he said, I have an idea that you know there should be a private bus company here in the Bay Area. And we said, okay, sure, come back to us when you've done something. And a week later, he came back and he basically said, I've rented a van, I'm driving it around the marina, and I'm picking up strangers, and people seem to like it. Um, And even that week, I was starting to see on social media, people I knew were taking this bus. Um, And then, you know, a few weeks after that, he'd found someone else to drive it, and he'd started a website. And it was so exciting to meet a founder who had an idea, and just every time you talked to him, he was executing towards his vision. Um, And so, of course, it was super exciting and obviously rewarding when when he was acquired pretty quickly. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Banter automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanter. Just head to vanter.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So for the listeners that don't know a lot about what the future of cities looks like and what urban innovation concepts and ideas might be, can you give us some ideas of what's going on inside your portfolio? What's some of the most crazy shit you've seen? What's some of the um, unusual stuff? Can you share some stories to give us some insights about what's going on in this part of the world? Sure. I mean, we have nine verticals where we tend to invest and where we see the most deals. So areas like transportation, education and workforce, housing in the built environment. And we see, you know, a ton of deals across all of those areas. Transportation is certainly the area where people, when you say urban, I think that's usually where their mind goes first. And we've definitely been active investors in that space. So a recent company we invested in was a company called Udelve. They're an electric autonomous last mile delivery vehicle. So they started by selling all the, to, all the buzzwords in one. Yeah. Is it um, AI and blockchain too or <laughs> not, not quite? No, not quite. They started by selling to small and medium-sized retailers who wanted to compete with the likes of Amazon. You know, we as customers think, yes, of course, we want to support, you know, local businesses and regional businesses. But, you know, when you need toilet paper, you need toilet paper. And if Amazon can get it to you same day and you don't have to leave your house, you know, that's kind of an un- unbeatable obstacle for a lot of these smaller businesses. And so that's where they started, but they actually um, are about to make a big announcement with a a national retailer as well. And so it's been interesting to see how quickly that space has evolved even in the last few years. So I think transportation is certainly an area where there's a lot of innovation. Um, Some of the more off-the-wall companies, I don't know if it's off-the-wall, but when I tell people about it, they're usually confused at first. It was that company you mentioned earlier briefly, um, Milk Stork, the breast milk shipping company. So for many of your listeners, they're probably not familiar, but the U.S. has a really terrible maternity and paternity leave policy. On a national level, there's no paid parental leave at all. Um, And so a lot of women in particular return to work very, very quickly after having children, um, which is a a tremendous hurdle. Um, And especially big companies, or really all companies, have trouble retaining women when they become moms. Or if those women do come back to work, often they select career paths that might not lead to the most senior levels of power within those companies just because those 
roles oftentimes involve a lot of travel. You definitely don't want to hear how long you get in the UK. I, I, I'm aware, believe okay. me, and it, it, it makes me feel sad um, for myself. But <laughs> basically, Milk Stork is a breast milk shipping company. So you can buy the service for yourself direct to consumer, but they sell to big companies like Goldman Sachs and McKinsey and Google and Microsoft, who essentially offer Milk Stork as an employee benefit. Um, so women can basically go on to their employee portal, say, this is where I'm going for work. This is how long I'm going to be there. Um, and when they arrive on their business trip, a delightful kit is waiting for them. They can pump their breast milk, put it in the kit. It chills it and overnights at home and either integrates with their health benefits or the company will pay for it. It's really awesome. I, I think it's the one company where I did customer references where people were literally crying, telling me how it totally changed the trajectory of their careers. And, you know, I, I think it does have applications internationally where there is better parental leave in terms of vacation. So a lot of women, especially the direct-to-consumer line, women use it for just general travel. And they're growing like wildfire. They're an awesome company, and we're really excited to back them. And sometimes people ask, you know, how does that fit within your vision of urban innovation? And for us, it fits very squarely within our workforce development area. You know, if you want to have the, the workforce of the future that really is equitable and accessible and where people can do their best work, uh, we think that companies like Milkstork are are great bets to make. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your perspective on the future of cities. So okay. to, what would a San Francisco look like in 10 years? The San Francisco I want or the San Francisco we're going to get? I'd love to hear both. <laughs> the San Francisco you're going to get might be too depressing. But it might be. But let's do both of them. No, I'm I'm optimistic. I mean, I think the San Francisco of the future, like so many cities, is going to be um, like Blade Runner. Yeah, just like Blade Runner, but also I think a real hub of sort of multimodal transit. I think historically, when you think about transit in cities, it's usually driving, walking, or you take you know light rail somewhere or bus maybe. Um, and now we have scooters, we have moto scooters, we have bikes, we have electric bikes. I think it's going to be. Um, important for cities of the future to find a way to knit them all together into one sort of cohesive option for people. Um, And I'm not sure if the city is actually going to be the one in charge of doing that knitting or whether it will be some public-private partnership with a company like Lyft or Uber. But it definitely seems like that's the direction it's going. And I think that's really, really important. I mean, the big challenge that so many cities face is around infrastructure um, and funding infrastructure, especially here in places like New York, where you hear about how the subway line is basically a mess. Um, But same is true in so many cities. And so I think there's lots of opportunities for public finance innovation. So companies like Neighborly, for example, um, the crowd investing platform for municipal bonds, I think financial innovation is is just as important as physical innovation as well. And do you think things like uh, Elon Musk's boring company is like a good example of someone just taking the onus on themselves because they're like, I live in LA, it drives me mad the city's not going to do anything about it, I'm going to do it myself? Or do you think that's a bit of a, an unusual and dangerous way to behave? I think it's certainly unusual. I think the challenge with Silicon Valley is that innovation sometimes seems easier than solving the problem, even though we know what the solution is, which is funding our existing infrastructure. It's just much hotter to do something new. It's much easier to get people's attention. So, um, you know, while the boring company is intriguing and certainly we need innovation in all sectors all the time, and I wouldn't be in this business if I didn't think it was uh, worth investing in those types of opportunities. Um, I do get frustrated sometimes, especially in places like San Francisco, where it's an incredibly politically disengaged 
community, um, even though people are are constantly striving to do better and they're very philanthropically active in some ways. But people, if you're like, who's your mayor? Who's the who's your supervisor? You know, when was the last time you voted? I think many of them wouldn't know. And you actually didn't answer the previous question, but what is the San Francisco you're going to get? I think it depends on who we elect um, in the next few years. Um, I think- so you can tell that you worked in Washington for a while with <laughs> <laughs> these answers. You know, I'm actually more optimistic than I have been in a while. I think um, people are starting to recognize that it's important to engage in order to get the outcomes you want. And I think a good example of that is the the scooter wars that have been happening here. So, you know, a bunch of scooters essentially launched without a permit here and were shut down by the city and who's now taking a more proactive role in kind of monitoring the innovation that's happening in our public space. They went through a very what I thought was a pretty short and clear permitting process. They essentially selected two companies to get back on the streets and it was good. You know, it was good. I think cities are starting to get smarter about how they deal with these companies. And, you know, my goal is not for them to go away, but I think it's all better for us when government understands what's going on and takes an active role in in making sure that companies don't run amok. Um, So I thought it was pretty good. I think the experience with companies like Uber and Airbnb have educated a lot of cities about how to approach innovation. I don't think they're ever going to be proactive. Like people talk like, oh, cities need to learn how to, you know, anticipate what's going to happen. And I just don't see that ever happening. But if cities can move more quickly and be more responsive and transparent about what they want out of the deal, I think we'll we'll all be better. But they do take a very much, uh, very much a um, well, the classic startup mentality, of course, but uh, ask for forgiveness, not permission approach to things. And as someone who worked in Washington, what do you think <laughs> about that kind of behavior? Because you're right, like we're learning a lot yeah. after the fact. Yeah. But um, it was it's such a free for all. Totally. There's been lessons, and I think this is probably why the scooter uh, scenarios had such backlash, because it's like, not again. Not again. And the two companies that ultimately were selected for permits were the two companies who didn't launch their product without a permit. Um, and I and think who that, were they? Were they Bird and Lion? Is that no? The so they didn't. Okay. They did. It was two of the smaller companies. So a okay. company called Scoot that already runs kind of like moped type sharing here in the city, and then a newer company called Skip. So I don't know if that will last, but I think it was really a good teachable moment for a lot of startups to understand that cities are getting smarter too. I think it's too much to expect them to proactively anticipate all of the new innovations. Since even I, I am an investor in this space and I have no idea what's going to be next, but I think cities are starting to, to catch on and entrepreneurs as a result are figuring it out. I mean, so many of the most highly valued private companies out there today are working in extremely regulated spaces. Palantir, as you mentioned, Airbnb, Uber, like these are highly regulated spaces. And while Uber may have been able to break things initially, they have a huge government affairs team now for a reason. Um, And I think that more and more we're starting to see even smaller companies kind of embrace that, if not collaborative, at least awareness that they didn't have before. Do you see like regulatory um, barriers essentially as a competitive advantage? Because you obviously work in the space and I guess, you know, the more you do it, the more understanding and expertise you'll get. Totally. Yeah, I mean, so is that so, just an, a huge area of opportunity for you? Well, when Chariot launched, they weren't the only commuter bus sort of shuttle service in the Bay Area. In fact, there were a number of better funded competitors in the market, including one backed by Andreessen Horowitz. And they were shut down by the California Public Utilities Commission within 30, 45 days after launch. That's stupid. 
you know what the rules are, and that could have been avoided. I think from our perspective, the reason Cherry was so interesting was because, you know, they knew what roles existed, and there's a reason that they had jumper vans and not bigger buses, because they're regulated differently. You know, they integrated with public benefits programs like WageWorks, so they were price comparable with Muni. They hired full-time drivers when everybody else was hiring 1099 part-time drivers. They hired from the local community, and they told all of the local supervisors about all the jobs they were creating. There are things you can do to not just avoid getting in trouble, but also proactively win in the space if you do it right, we think. And clearly vindicated with your results as well. I'd like to think so, yeah. I'd like to say so. <laughs> and once it's said on a podcast, yeah, it's just it's fact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Fast forward into the future, it's 2050, and there's an expectation of two-thirds of the world's population is going to be living in, uh, in urban areas, so in cities by that point. Mm-hmm. So what are the main urban challenges you think that would help us as a society tackle that future? What are the main areas of opportunity? How are you going to make the world a better place in that incredibly compact scenario? Oh boy, an area where we would love to see more innovation Um, especially my co-founder, Julie, this is like her pet area, is aging and aging in place. There are so many opportunities to deliver care, especially in people's homes if you're living in a dense urban environment. And we're starting to see more innovation. I mean, if I see another like scanner that tells you when an old person falls, I'm going to kill myself. But, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity in that space and we would love to see more innovation there. Talk to me about this scanner that tells you when well, just like there, falls. you know, whether it, there's lots of monitoring systems. I think we've been pitched by at least six in the last year, where basically monitors movement or breathing or sleep patterns or sounds, um, or literally is a video camera that watches old people essentially, and I mean monitors them for falls, which is a you know a huge driver of injury and death for for the elderly, which is, you know, legitimate. We would love to see a solution in that space, but I think people could be pushing themselves a little bit more when yeah. it comes and to Yeah, and also it just sounds like the next update on an Alexa anyway. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's kind of the problem. Like, every time they uh, they do more and more, you're like, oh, no, it's just another feature you could just add as a, uh, a bolt on. I try to keep all sort of voice tools out of my house as best as I can because they're definitely it makes me nervous yeah Yeah. for sure it's great I saw a really good meme the other day which was uh people in the 1950s were all like hey man the freaking government's listening to us every moment let's check all of our phones take out all the bugs and people today are like hey wiretap yeah what's the latest uh weather update my husband tried to explain to me why it was he brought a google home home with him one day and tried to explain to me that it was valuable because you could, you know, ask it what the weather was or what time it was. And I just didn't find it compelling. I mean, it's magical. It's a magical consumer experience, but the pros didn't outweigh the cons for me. See, I have it because I'm lazy. But interestingly for my mum, who um, is a little bit of a technophobe, as a lot of mums are, uh, it's amazing for her. Totally. I I get it. Yeah. And it's really interesting watching older people use uh, voice technology and how complete, I mean, literally, like for people our age, it is just uh, completely lazy. My dad does it, like he'll text me or I'll hear him, you know, writing a text to his wife and I'll say, you know, Victoria, comma, I'm very, you know, just it's, it seems longer and more annoying, but he loves it. He will only communicate 
by a voice on his phone if he can help it. Dot, 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 joy cat emoji. Yes, no, no, I'm not, you're joking, but that's exactly right. That's brilliant. Now I'm wondering if that's how my mum texts me, her emojis. I'm sure. Yeah, she always picks up random emojis. I'm like, how did you find that one? It's probably just speaking to it. Okay, so I understand that the Urban Innovation Fund, sorry to bring it back on track. Shame on us. Um, I understand the Urban Innovation Fund uh, has a very strong emphasis on diversity within the portfolio, as Uh we were mentioning at the start. So, um, 76% of the startups you've supported have a woman or person of color on the founding team. That's it, Tummel. At the fund, it's 73%, but yes, 73 basically. At the fund. But yeah. like I said, you know, once you say it on a podcast, it <laughs> becomes real. real. 3% just got added to your number, and they're probably joining as we speak. It's true. So if we add another company, it'll magic. change again. It's 93%. Is there an element of you saying no on the basis of like a box tick, in a sense? Is it, is it that strategic? No. So we don't actively select for any demographic factors. It's just been kind of a happy and consistent accident for all of our investing work. And I can only speculate as to why it is. I mean, we're both women, Julie and myself, and I'm sure that means we have our own biases. But even at the top of the funnel, we've seen that one statistic is 55% of the companies we see at the very top of the funnel. And we've I think for this fund now, we've seen about 3,000 deals. Uh, 55% have a woman on the founding team. So it's not like we're just really selecting towards the the women. But I I do think it's helpful to have women and people of color in the room. And that's, you know, our associate, we have an associate as a person of color. And um, again, not something that we're actively selecting for, but I think means we have different networks, we have different biases um, or lack of biases um, that allow us to be maybe a little bit more open-minded. Some people have suggested that because of the industry verticals that we're investing in, um, that might also play a role. Um, That was going to be my question, you know, is it just, uh, is it part of it that you're in essentially some social, social good space and women are nicer people? Uh, That's possible. I'm not going to put you on record for it, don't worry. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of our founders would die rather than self-identify as a social impact company. Some identify as mission-driven or world-positive or nothing at all, and there are very good reasons to want to or not want to put yourself in that bucket. But I do think, you know, we do focus on companies that are solving at least what we perceive to be meaningful challenges. Perhaps that's motivating a different set of people to think about technology and entrepreneurship as a sort of career path for them. Although, again generalization and there's no real way to know. Sure. Um, Okay, so you've raised a bunch of money for a seed fund. How much of it percentage-wise or dollar-wise, whatever you feel more comfortable sharing, (laughs) um, have you so far distributed? And I guess, you know, that is leading on to the question of what's next for you and the fund. Sure. So we're a $24.5 million fund. We've made 15 investments. Um, I think our overall fund size will, I mean, portfolio size will end up being about 25 companies. Um, So we still have quite a ways to go. And we've allocated about half the fund for follow-on investing. So that's a really big priority for us. Um, So yeah, it's going to be a busy year. So are you going out to fundraise again anytime soon? Not anytime soon, but I'm sure in the next few years we will. And um, I'm already stealing myself for that. Actually, I really, I really like the fundraising process. Because? It's... It's a really, no, I I think it's a really cool opportunity to meet a lot of very, very interesting people. Um, There's also something kind of immediately rewarding, you know, when you ask for something and people say yes or no, at least you know, whereas with a company you invest and it's going to be, you know, five, seven, 10 years before you know if it was a good idea or a stupid idea. Um, So there's something kind of stabilizing about that experience when you're dealing with so many 
awesome but incredibly volatile companies. Okay, so just moving um, away from uh, what you do and okay. more who you are, um, just because obviously uh, female founder, VC, SF, you know, it all sounds like uh, you probably don't get any sleep or have any downtime whatsoever. Is that true? Talk to us about work-life balance. Is there such a thing for you? Totally. I mean, I think that was one of the reasons why I was so excited to work with Julie. I think we have very similar views about making time for our family. We both love and are very close with our parents and our friends. And and so I think we've been really deliberate about how we schedule our time. Um, So like I get up really, really early, but every day at six o'clock, I'm out of the office. You know, occasionally there are work events in the evening, which of course I go to, but I think I was very deliberate about setting up my schedule and, and Julie's kind of the opposite. She's a real night owl. But the point is, you know, as long as you get your work done, I don't really care if you're in the office on a Saturday or late at night, you know, there's no merit badge for doing that. Um, so I think that that's been really good in terms of the culture we've tried to set for for us and for our employees. So having found success as an entrepreneur at an early age, like have you actually found it hard to maintain friendships, relationships with old friends? How do you find that kind of transition? No, I mean, I'm super deliberate about it. And I think so is Julie. And that's been really good. I mean, I try to make time almost every day to try and see someone who's not work-related. And every Friday we have dinner at our house, so we don't go out on Friday nights and we invite people over. And I think that's been a really good opportunity to, you know, on a regular basis to engage with everybody. And that's just something we started doing when I was little and and I think has been a really nice thing to bring back as an adult. You're much more disciplined than I am. I'm <laughs> awful at seeing my friends, sadly. Um, right. Would you say... Um, like if you had to choose any city to live in the world, would it be San Francisco or are you mostly here because the business opportunities are just so fantastic? Definitely, I would be in San Francisco. Oh, yes, you're here for life? I'm in it to win it in San Francisco for sure. I mean, if you said you're going to live in London for the rest of your life, I would be happy. If you said you're going to live in Detroit for the rest of your life, I would be happy. I think there's so many amazing cities out there. But for me, there just came a time where I felt really strongly about picking a place and getting to know my neighbors and the local philanthropic community and who my elected officials were and those types well, of things. Someone in San really, Francisco has to know that. Somebody, most yeah. people don't. But for me, that was really important. And so I picked San Francisco. So one of the, and this is a harder one, because just talking to you, it sounds like everything's been on the up and up and up, and perhaps that's the case. <laughs> but one of the things that's very common when we talk to entrepreneurs, of course, is, you know, they've had some colossal fuck-ups and yeah. really dark days. And that's, you know, usually the stuff that they're very comfortable and able to share because it's part of what shaped them on for the next journey. Yeah. Have there been any moments like that for you so far? Any any great fails before the next success? And if not, does that just make you terrified about what's to come? No, I mean, I think the thing that Julie and I think about is that there's fails every single day. Um, and, you know, we'll talk to an entrepreneur who's agonizing because, you know, they've pitched 10 VCs and they've gotten no's. And I try to explain to them, do you know how many people we had to pitch to raise this fund? Like, you're just going to get a ton of no's and you have to steal yourself towards it. And even when we were starting Tumble, I mean, the idea of creating uh, essentially a showcase investment portfolio of startups doing good things for the community while also pursuing market rate returns, like we got laughed at all the time. No one really understood what we were trying to do. And it just takes, I think, a lot of self-direction. And for me, I was just lucky to have Julie around, you know, as a really good friend, but also an awesome co-founder. You know, you need someone who you can cry with and, you know, be dejected with and and then be excited when it works out. But, you know, it's not like it was like I woke up and, and was like, I'm going to start a VC firm. And then I did, you know, it took a really 
long time to do. How long did you take to raise it? Two years. Okay. And it was a great experience. I, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but, you know, it, it involves a lot of ups and downs along the way. What's the greatest piece of advice you think you've ever been given? I get lots of good advice. Um, I try to ask everybody for advice. But one piece of advice I was thinking about recently, so I went to a a small girls' school in Washington, D.C., and the motto of the school was find a way or make one. Um, And I think that that is kind of representative of what I try to do. Um, And I think it's a good, good motto for everybody. Okay. And final question uh-huh. before we let you go and uh, do some good in the world and invest yeah. in amazing founders. What is the one change you'd like to see in the Silicon Valley ecosystem over the next five years? Like, what's the most important thing for you which uh, would demonstrate progress and make you really fulfilled and happy? I would like the Urban Innovation Fund to be like the biggest, baddest, best venture fund in the world. Um, that would make me very happy. Um, but also, I, I would love to see more women investors in this space. I think, you know, you won't see more women founders until you see more women investors. Thank you very much. Thanks really for having me. Really appreciate the time. Next week on Secret Leaders. Being the person who found Uber or Calm and was just involved in those companies from the beginning, that would be a pretty good way of determining that I was amongst the greatest investors of all time. And so I just figured, what's a good, crazy goal? 400 investments in four years. That was Jason Calacanis, the best angel investor in the world, according to, well, him. He even wrote a book about it called How to Angel Invest. In fairness, he knows a thing or two. He was the first angel investor in Uber and one of the first in our friends from the show, Calm, who've since gone on to become a billion-dollar company. Well done to Michael and Alex. So if you want to know how to pick a winner and hear a masterclass in lacking humility, then you are in for a big old treat. Tune in next week or you'll miss out. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by your host. That's me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton of Lower Street Media. And if you've heard this, it'll probably have something to do with Jennifer Osman in Canada. You'll also notice throughout this series, we've got some beautiful illustrations made for every episode. And that's all thanks to Christina Naru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming Secret Leaders live events on secretleaders.com. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe on whatever media player you use. Just follow us at Secret Leaders on Instagram or at Secret Leaders One on Twitter. And tell just one friend about how freaking awesome this episode is. If you want to go the extra mile, I'm at Dan Murray Serta on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'd love to see you take some screenshots of the episode you're listening to and share it across your social media. It'll bring a tear to our eye and joy to our hearts. See you next week. Tune in or you'll miss out.